Hello, Canada and the rest of the world, and welcome once again to the Netflix Podcast, the show where we review the movies available to stream on Canadian Netflix. I'm Dylan Clark-Moore, and I'm joined here today by the proprietor of Bread and Roses Books, an innovative book reseller based in London, Ontario, specializing in non-fiction, rarities, and textbooks. Welcome to Mr. Chris Stroud. Hello. Welcome, Chris. It's good to have you on. We've been talking about this for a while. Yeah, this is great. I really uh, appreciate uh, coming on here and having a chat with you about this. Well, what we're here to talk about this week is from the year 2016, based on the book by Michael Pollan. We're going to be talking about Netflix's original docu-series, Cooked. Before we get into that, I should let you know that today's episode of the Netflix podcast is brought to you in part by UnLondon's 121 Studios, London, Ontario's premier digital media hub and co-working space. Visit 121studios.ca for more information. So as always, we want to start with how Netflix describes this title. So first, when you hover over it, it says, Inside every act of cooking lies a revolution and a story about who we are. Which I like. I like that as a description. It's it's captivating and it really gets to the, the heart of what this whole thing is about. It's definitely intriguing. When you click on the title, the description changes to, As he tries his hand at baking, brewing, and braising, acclaimed food writer Michael Pollan explores how cooking transforms food and shapes our world. The genres that Cooked belongs to, according to Netflix, are TV shows, TV documentaries, documentaries, and social and cultural docs, and the mood it assigns is cerebral. So, Chris, this is the title that you chose. It's not often that we take on series on this show, so this is a, a special selection that you've, you've made. So, why did you want to talk about Cooked? I really, really enjoy uh, listening to Michael Pollan um, speak. He's a, you know, he's a definitely a good speaker and a good writer. Um, I've seen some of his uh, books previous to Cooked, although I haven't read Cooked itself. So he, you know, sort of has always sparked an interest in me to hear more of what he's got to say. The topic itself being on food and uh, and culture and 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 civilization as he sort of brings it about, you know, is is also a, a topic that I've uh, been interested in in the last uh, few years. So this is one that I was happy to to get involved with. So now that you've watched it, how do you feel about? this as a documentary series like do you think that it, it accomplished what it set out to do i think it's really interesting i think it's an ambitious for pollen to take on because he really does try and touch on everything and so it ranges from you know the the cheese nun to uh, climate change um and and bread so um it's really broad it's really ambitious it, uh, ambitious and it's very good so I think there's some um, some good there, and as well as you know, you can sort of come at it and and to say maybe uh, you know a, a little too ambitious in in some parts. But generally, I was excited about it, mm-hmm. and I can see how others would take away some excitement about food, cooking, doing sort of things uh, more themselves at at home around food. So. I think generally it's good. The last time that we talked about a documentary on this show also actually was a a social and cultural doc, according to Netflix, about food. And that was uh, when I spoke to Stephen Such from Sustainable Joe's about cowspiracy and how that was all about the North American diet and how much of it consists of eating meat. And this reminded me of that, but is better. Uh, it seems like it's it's got less of a less of an aggressive agenda and is less aggressively edited for the sake of trying to push a point. It was more about, like you said, it's this very ambitious project trying to educate people about 
food, (laughs) which is this enormous part of all of our lives. And to try to teach a lot about a lot, I mean, it makes sense that it's at least in four parts. A question that Stephen asked me when we were talking about Cowspiracy was what I think a documentary should do. And what I answer is that it should either educate you or it should change your mind about something and, and stick with you. And that's what I'm really hoping for from Cooked because I learned things from it. But more importantly than that, I wanted, as I was watching, I said, I hope that this sticks. I really hope that this sticks in my brain because if you can say that it has an agenda, the agenda is educating people about what they put into their own bodies. It's not necessarily pushing one thing over another. It is skeptical of processed foods. It's in a way that cares about food and about what you put into your body and just generally trying to get people engaged. And I so very much, like I said, want the hooks to set in and for this to have an impact on me and for me to be more engaged with the food that I eat. But as I say that earlier today, I got kind of hungry at work. And then the next thing I knew, I'm pounding back a Coke Zero and eating Mr. Noodles. And I was like, God damn it, I am part of the problem right now. (laughs) But it even kind of lets you off the hook towards the end with the conclusion when he says, I'm not asking everybody to change everything they do every day. I'm saying even if you once or twice a week or if you devote just a bit of time every week to making a couple of meals that it'll change the relationship that you have with your food and that's the it's the premise and I think it's very effective and again I I hope that that sticks with me because there's no real downside I mean they they lay out the downside of paying attention to what you eat is the investment of time and then if you're willing to part with that and make that not even really a sacrifice then you can make some real tangible changes in your life. I think it's really interesting to start talking about food because food is such a personal and delicate subject for people because it really does sort of hit home, you know, in in many ways. And so I think that what um, Michael Pollan is really good at is creating this narrative around food that's more about being gentle and educating than it is about saying these are all the bad, terrible, awful things. And, you know, you need to stop right now. That I think in the end, that that message is, you know, really comes kind of, you know, slowly, but at the end, you you get it, that this, you know, industrialization process that's happened around our food system has taken a while to set in. And we are seeing the effects of that now as he talks about diabetes, obesity, um, heart disease, and all of these other effects um, that we see in our bodies, that this is, you know, taken a, a, a long time, a, a, you know, 50 or 60 year uh, long process. And so these kinds of things we can't just turn off overnight, that the industrial food system can't be, you know, taken down in, in one fell swoop, that we can't change our entire diet in, you know, in one day. So that this process and this movie or these this set of movies really does a good job at saying, okay, you know, take back little bits at a time and that the, the goal isn't to, to switch off overnight. And I think that's really, you know, a good place to start because you know, taking a different approach can be offensive to people or, you know, really challenging. And you don't want that to sort of frighten people away right away, that you want to engage in that conversation. And and I think this movie is a good sort of starting point around the conversation. Lots of education, you know, history, uh, culture, um, and, you know, just a variety of angles. By the end, he's not advocating that people kind of shelter themselves away, build their own farms, be entirely sustainable to themselves and and things like that. Like it's 
respectful to the systems that have created some problems mm-hmm. in that it explains kind of the, the history. Like it, it Over the course of the four episodes, it starts off and says, well, really, if we look at it, it started with kind of wartime and with the idea that we had these technologies that were created or these, these processing processes that were created for the sake of having food be available to people in war zones. And then when we had this, we thought, well, there are practical uses for this at home. And then, you know, we as we move along, it's these small steps that, that keep getting taken. And it follows that story all the way along. And it provides these insights that aren't that aren't about how big and evil corporations are. It explains how we got to where we are. And uh, the one part that was probably the most interesting for me in terms of, again, understanding how we got to where we are, I think it was when they were talking about bread and how (laughs) when they developed white flour and started making bread out of white flour that it was found that there were some serious problems with that. And instead of moving backward, Mm -hmm. this progress kept moving things forward. So then we went from white flour to, uh uh-oh, there's a bunch of nutrients missing. So now it's enriched white flour where there had already been so much invested into this thing that was found to be cheap. Nobody wanted to move backwards. So they made the thing that branched off seem better from a marketing and nutrition standpoint when going back further would have likely led to the avoidance of a lot of these problems. Yeah, I think that it was a good balance between tradition, traditional ways of um, food preparation and the idea of food being a communal um, sort of act. I mean, I kind of mapped out when I was going through each of the episodes how food was part of a community and, you know, how there there was the um, the neighborhood or the community um, oven and the baker would bake all the bread and how around the fire it's not a that's not an individual act but there's a group of people a family or a community coming together around a fire so he's connecting all of these very sort of you know uh, community and almost uh, spiritual sacred ethereal sort of um, parts of food and and then twinning that with uh, the science behind it and you don't need to have the science to actually do the fermentation process. You don't have to actually have to know which microbes, and they were doing this kind of fermentation process even before um, they understood what was actually going on. So I think there was a good, a good um, balance of going back and forth to these, uh, both of these ends of the spectrum. Trial and error figured it out long before science could explain it. And that, that really was a lot of the power of it. And you spoke about community, and that was another part that, that jumps out, is in these cultures that get kind of, I mean, in the context of the movie, they get raised up as being, here's how things are better, you know, doing southern barbecue or having this communal bakery and things like that. He very briefly mentions that the nuclear family, that whole concept, mm-hmm. has dissolved a lot of com- community because it's not about people getting together to share food. It's about bringing food into the household from externally and then consuming it there and, you know, going to the supermarket, bringing it home and not not sharing that with anybody. It's very, very insular. Yeah, no, I think that he it's a it's good at at showing that that connection between food and and um, and community food and uh, being a social and and cultural kind of um, act when. I sort of start thinking about food um, and our food system, and I always kind of begin with it 
you know, sort of, we understand that it's kind of broken. It's kind of not, not functioning as it should. You know, I think the way Michael Pollan has put this together is, you know, given us a window into, you know, what was before and, and also highlighting some of the, the broken pieces of our, of our food system, being able to identify and, you know, um, industrial meat, um, industrial dairy, these kinds of practices that aren't doing us any good. They're not doing us any favors. They're not making us healthier or better. And so it's, you know, it's good not just to be highlighting all of the things that are wrong, but to see some elements of where it has come from, you know, maybe where bread, you know, started, where did fermentation start, maybe. And to give that kind of analysis from the beginning, oh, yeah, okay, you know, maybe it was rotting food somewhere and, and somebody drank some, some coconut that was, you know, cracked open and, and, and to, to understand um, how that kind of came about and then to understand now where those pieces are going wrong. So I think that these are important elements to start, start a conversation and to go forward with uh, talking further about food in your own life and your interconnectivity with food and family and community and, um, and that process of making food in your own home and um, I think it's uh, you know I think it's it's an important uh, you know reclaiming um, of sorts of parts of your life you know parts of the food system I think what he promotes elsewhere um, might be things like uh, shopping at the local farmers market where you see the producer you get to um, understand and know exactly what is in your food uh, where it comes from and so these kinds of really rooted community acts, you know, contributing to your life, uh, improving your, you know, your health. I think these are, these are good ways uh, to move forward and to see yourself in, in that, in that new food system or within the current, the current food system. He talks about at the end, he talks about the way that you choose to interact with food being a vote. And it's, it's political to choose to not take the easy path and just throw something in their microwave and wolf that down. One of my problems I have with Michael Pollan um, might be that, that, that food vote or that casting a vote every day. Because I think that what he's done is he's contextualized throughout the movie or the movies, food as a communal community act that you know, it's almost impossible in certain certain circumstances to have that as an individualized process where you would, you know, do something by yourself. And then that would be more characteristic of the nuclear family or, or um, industrial food. But to address these kinds of issues um, and the industrial food system as it is, um, I think that it really takes something more political or more organized and I think that to you know to be part of a of, of a, a movement of uh, farmers or a, a movement of, of activists looking to um, change the industrial food system I think and from my perspective I'm a big fan of, of social movements to join a social movement be part of something um, uh, a group organizing to make something better or to or to correct what's uh, what's already happening in the industrial food system. So I think that you know the food vote or the the casting the the one vote every time you eat I think is is good but could be better. Right. I think it's weak in that 
we, we miss the part about strength and numbers and how we can work together as a community to address our needs and our concerns and how we would like to move forward. Yeah, I was thinking about this recently because I was found myself in a situation where I wanted I wanted a, a quick meal and apparently this is just going to be me disclosing how terribly I eat. But I I stopped at a Burger King and I thought, you know what? These guys have a veggie burger and you know I I try to not eat meat in my yes. in my day to day. And as I was spending the money there, I was thinking, yeah, and this is me letting them know, hey Burger King, vegetarians count. Like we matter. And then I realized <laughs> As I was eating the thing, I was like, they don't care. Like, there would have to be this tremendous upswell of everybody eating this thing. Because what I've actually done is I've given my money to a company that participates in systems that I don't want to endorse. And they're not, it's not a one to one correlation. Like, they're not going to think, oh, one kid bought a veggie burger, so let's make more veggie burgers. I've given money to this industry that is perpetuating a lot of problems and they're going to spend that money however they want or they're going to spend that money coming up with some new burger with so much extra bacon on it to appeal to people so unless i'm mistaken like that's kind of the same idea that sure you can vote with your dollar or you can vote by not spending your dollar but those small acts may not be as disruptive to the overall system as as one might like to think yeah, I mean, there is, a, you know, sort of huge protests and movements um, of agricultural workers in California who decided one day um, that they weren't going to buy anything that one day. So there was this huge movement. There was a protest in the streets of, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of of people to bring awareness to the issue of you know the importance of agricultural workers who in the states in the you know in California are mostly um Mexican or, or Mexican descendants and not treated well paid well um without any recourse to any any kinds of concerns they have in their labor conditions so i think that that you know is a good way the the movement for 15 dollars uh an hour uh, minimum um, living wage. Um, these are sort of good movements to be a part of to change the uh, the industrial food system, where food service, which is brought up in this movie, and I think could have been you know sort of um, talked about in you know in relation to sort of gender and or class issues and how um, who works in the food industry, who is less likely or more likely to be buying the food, and who and more less likely can afford the actual food in general. So um, I think that idea of 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 mobilizing people together um, on issues, I think, is really good um, in terms of making change and maybe something that was um, overlooked in this movie or set of episodes, I should say. Okay, so this series is broken down into four episodes. Each one is labeled as if they were speaking of one of the 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 four natural elements. I felt like this was kind of a, a tenuous <laughs> theme. It seemed like the, the idea was sound until you actually get into it because fire is actually about meat. Water is actually about plants. <laughs> uh, air was about bread. And then earth is about fermentation. But that doesn't look quite as good on a poster, so I can kind of understand why they did it. But but it, it did try to kind of ground this food with this kind of mystical, ethereal idea. So let's start with fire. 
It was very interesting. I didn't know much about um, Australian Aborigine culture or cultures. Um, so it was really interesting to see those folks on the land um, and how they felt connected to the land and how they sort of operated on the land in terms of, you know, hunting and, and eating and just sort of being generally being and um, around the fire and how central that was to um, uh, their culture. It was neat to see talking about reclaiming some of that by, um, you know, hearing a bit about their history on the land, how they were taken off, and then that how they've been recently going back and and how that, you know, has actually affected their, their health and well-being. So I thought that was interesting for me. Taking these people who'd been living off the land and living off this staple of guana meat and, and the occasional kangaroo, if you if your burly men were manly and burly enough to, to actually nab one, that when you all of a sudden introduce this Western diet to them, like their bodies just exploded <laughs> with the diabetes that that they, they just absolutely couldn't handle it. And it shows this tremendous shock to the system. And it, it takes that, that long drawn out process that's happened over decades of, of processed food and things like that. And it just showed what happens when those two worlds kind of come into collision with each other, that it's not a slow creep towards unhealth. It's this drastic epidemic of harm that can happen to your body if all of a sudden you were to start eating like when when i say we i mean north americans like we eat now it also bothered me not for cooked sake but for cowspiracy's sake that michael pollan in this series talks about how if everybody were to adopt a vegetarian diet that would be disruptive as well and he he says like uh, ecologically speaking there needs to be a balance of plants and animals and that's probably the most sustainable thing that we have going for us which was annoying to me because in cowspiracy michael pollan is edited to kind of very heavily imply that <laughs> a plant-based diet is the only way that the world is going to survive so that just kind of was a point against cowspiracy for me when michael pollan in his own words <laughs> specifically goes against that and says no i believe that a balance is what we actually need um, I, I kind of picked up on that as well, and I think that I had to so just rewatch that part just so I could hear it again. And what I picked up on the second time was that he was talking about, or it seemed to be, he was talking about um, farming and that the only sustainable way forward was to include animals on the farm and having a mixed farm as opposed to, in contrast to, an industrial um, farm where there was just high intensity meat production or high intensity vegetable production without any mixing and that there's that relationship between animals and uh, food production or growing crops on the land that's important to have for that to be a healthy sustainable system so I'm not, it was a bit confusing, so I'm not sure exactly what he was talking about, but I think it's an important point to make because in that uh, episode, it's kind of advocating somewhat implicitly that meat eating is got to be okay in some way because he talked about it for a whole hour or 50 minutes. So, mm. um, and he sort of talked about the industrial meat production being sort of the bad thing but then reclaiming some of that back by talking about good quality meat and buying less of that versus 
um, talk, you know, sort of adopting or taking on the industrial food system and their meat being, you know, widely uh, consumed. And yeah, it, I, I felt confused in that as well. Because mm-hmm. what, what was the end message? It's kind of up in the air. A couple of the other broad ideas that weren't specifically related to me, but that got brought up were one is the, the modern relationship with food. And he pointed out, and this was, it's one of those things that when somebody says it to you, you're like, oh yeah, of course. But talking about how fetishized food is in that we have all these cooking shows where you'll sit down and you'll watch somebody cook for 30 minutes for an hour. You know, you'll watch people (laughs) compete and do all these amazing things and you'll watch it actively. This isn't just something you do passively and you're not following along on your kitchen counter. Like that's, that's what the Food Network originally was. It was supposed to be like, cook along with me. And I'll wait while you finish chopping your vegetables. And now it's all very stylish and all about who can make what out of gummy bears and things like that. So it really does point out this disconnect that we're willing to accept good food as entertainment, but we're not willing to invest that same time in the creation of food, even for feeding our own bodies. And he points out, again, in this kind of obviously realization thing that we're not feeding ourselves, we're letting corporations feed us. And when we were feeding ourselves, historically, we were feeding ourselves to provide ourselves with nutrition and sustenance. When corporations are feeding us, they're feeding us whatever it takes for us to give us their money. And that's that very clear (laughs) distinction that at the end of the day, sure, it's in a corporation's best interest to keep you alive. Like you can't feed a dead person (laughs) and there has to be, you know, their their main goal is going to be to have a sustainable customer base. But it's never going to be about keeping you healthy. Plus, it also ends with that weird song with uh, James Taylor singing about his pig, which kind of kind of threw me off there. I felt sometimes like this series wanted, really wanted to make that connection between spirituality and food yeah. so much so that I was resisting it. Like mm-hmm. I was just like, "This is okay. Like let's let's tone it down a little bit, Michael. Like you're turning me off your message a little bit here." Like. Was it the the James Taylor that made it more spiritual? That was part of it. That was, that was a touch hokey there, but <laughs> no offense to your dead pig, James Taylor, if you're listening. But uh, I, it was really personal for for Michael Pollan to make this like these uh, uh, the series because I mean he included so many anecdotal um, stories. I mean he we saw both of his sons, we saw his kitchen, we saw James Taylor, which he has a connection through a pig or pigs. Um, so it you know it's this really personal journey for for him, and so I think it is kind of a, you know sort of verging on some kind of spiritual sacredness, this connection with the earth, food, cooking because. From what I remember reading about Michael Pollan is that he didn't start out in food, that he started out as a journalist or a writer of some sort, and then happened into food um, through gardening and starting his own garden. So this, you know, it almost seems like a really personal, personalized story. And I think, you know, I think it sort of is good in that in that way. And so... Where does James Taylor fit in the whole grand scheme of, you know, the industrial food system or, or um, you know, um, gardening? Well, 
you know, he sort of fits alongside the cheese nun and the, you know, the, the Moroccan, um, you know, baker, you know, these kinds of personal stories of, of food. And I think it's light and it's, it's a little entertaining to see, you know, James Taylor um, at the end singing about, is it Mona? Is that what it Mona, is? Mona. <laughs> Mona the pig. <laughs> All right. Was there anything else with fire that you wanted to touch on you know we saw the you know the extensive use of land that the um is it the marti marti people of uh western australia i think they needed a huge amount of land they were burning a, a large amount and not everywhere is that possible and so if we were to sort of all try and adopt that kind of way of being that would be difficult you know and so um so you know these kinds of romanticizing a little bit of traditional culture is you know can you know for me is a little bit challenging because not everybody has that access to land in fact most people in the world have less access to land and will survive on less than a hectare or or a hectare um, that amount of land is, you know, not, they're not burning that down and then, and, uh, and then, you know, using it widely. So I think that was one of the challenges for me was to see that as, you know, one way to look at how to, you know, how we can sort of go back and reclaim or to move forward it would be a difficult, it would be a challenge for all of us to have that much land that we can burn and to, you know, sort of look for food. Um, yeah. And, and that was interesting that sometimes they, Sometimes the ideas that he seemed like he wanted to talk about, it wasn't possible to draw a practical application from. It was more about trying to get in touch with the the ideas and the yeah. philosophies without, yeah. yeah, you know, you you just cannot, you can't do that. <laughs> if I were to set fire to my backyard, that would probably cause a lot of problems. The, I mean, although it was a window into, you know, one culture, it was, you know, super interesting. And, you know, I think the movie benefited from that. Mm-hmm. Also early on with with meat, I liked that in each of the episodes they talk sometimes a lot about kind of scientifically what's happening mm-hmm. and where this nutrition is actually coming from. Like with meat, the idea of cooking meat or cooking things in general comes with the benefit of having it be softer, which makes it easier to chew, which makes it easier to digest. And that was one of the things I loved about Cooked is that it gives you these little nuggets of information that just shifts how you think about what's going on mm-hmm. and and really giving you a better understanding and appreciation for the overall context and for and for how how this whole system of consumption and digestion works which we get in episode 2 which is water primarily dealing with plant-based foods the example that they're spending a lot of time with is with stews and soups Mm -hmm. and how with the introduction of water you can get into making these more complex dishes it's not just a question of heating up meat you're doing these different things together where on a molecular level the molecules of this one vegetable are coming into the molecules of this other vegetable and they're creating something other than what was there in the first place and it takes the magic of cooking and it explains it in a way that makes it for someone like me more approachable and less intimidating because it lets you know like there is actually a chemical reaction that's happening here and being able to appreciate it on both the spiritual and the practical level. Yeah, I love that um, he was outlining sort of human evolution and the role that food had played all along the way and how fire unleashed our ability to, you know, grow our brain and and that evolved 
um, and allowed us to become Homo erectus or vice versa, Homo erectus, you know, that sort of interconnectivity between us eating meat and allowing us to, you know, evolve. So I think that was super interesting. And, and really, you know, that sort of theme carried through each of the episodes of, you know, what evolutionary breakthrough um, occurred with, you know, um, being able to cook in pots. What does that mean in our, uh, you know, human evolution? There's, you know, more complex societies, more organized. We'd have to be able to um, be able to make pottery and and have all of these different mixes of of uh, herbs and and vegetables and meat all together. And then moving forward into bread and and what would that mean? You'd have to have farmers. You'd have to have you know someone being able to mill it cooking and in in those ways so you can just sort of envision more complex organized societies as he moves through his his series so i think that was really exciting and really interesting as you're you know as you as you said you know giving giving me insight into well this is exciting stuff like it wasn't just something that just happened there was fire and then there was cooked meat yeah and we've touched on that before with how we give him credit for showing us the history of how corporations have become our primary source of food, but also taking the time to explain the history of what food was, the history of what food is, and also chemically and biologically what's actually happening to make it all happen. So it's giving you, you know, whatever context you want, it's giving it to you. It's like a, how in school they tell you, you know, you need to learn what kind of learner you are. Are you a tactile learner? Are you a visual learner? And he's, <laughs> he's giving you anything that any information that could possibly get its hooked into you so that something sticks. Cause that's, that's what he wants. He wants something to shift in your brain. Yeah. He's not necessarily, he may be hoping for a revolution, but he understands that it's all going to, that it's probably going to happen in small steps. Probably the image that stuck with me most from the episode of water. The, I, th- I believe that this is the episode that shows two different Indian families. So it opens with the, the one woman cooking in the pot, getting all of the food ready for her husband to take to work. Mm-hmm showing that in Indian culture, there have been ways that have been created to keep people eating actual food, Mm -hmm. even during a busy lifestyle. And you see this great box, you know, these, you know, stacking of the, of the different metal things on top of each other. And it seems amazing. And there's this industry based on people having fresh food at their workplace during their breaks. And that's amazing. And then later in the episode, you see the family, the, the mother and father and I think it's uh, a son and daughter who talk openly and seemingly without concern about how three or four times a week they order in KFC right and that's how they eat and even looking at just looking at them even though the the woman who's cooking the food for her husband and and her husband you know they're you know they're they're kind of like a soft people like they're they're not like physically yes. you know fit in the in the typical North American way that we look at it even looking at them, those people versus the KFC family, one of them looks healthy and the other one doesn't. And it's not just about, you know, the the shapes of their bodies. There's something about that family who primarily lives off of a diet of fast food that that just they don't seem okay. And these mm-hmm. are people living in the same country and it does this great job of putting them side by side without ever saying that they're putting them side by side. And then the just watching how normalized it is for these people to to do that to just ring up the phone and that's their tradition is doing the phone call to get the kfc to them 
And the, the mother, I think, is the one who talks about how, yeah, the kids, you know, if I make a home-cooked meal, they won't eat it. So it's this this self-perpetuating problem where mm-hmm. you've got this corporation that is primarily concerned with making a good taste happen in your mouth. They're not worried about what happens once it gets past your mouth. And how addictive that can be that you can have an entire family unit within probably one generation completely succumb to it and start mm-hmm. ruining their bodies and ruining their health for the sake of you know this salty crispy chicken skin in their mouth i i think the the second episode was the strongest in terms of education or the most sort of bits in there about what um what our industrial food system is doing um, and how it's acting and and how our culture has sort of played into um, into it and and sort of that um, you know being too busy the idea of being too busy and how the industrial food system has quickly moved in to to address that you know being too busy and having two people work um, at, uh, at home so I'm glad that they were looking at um, one country you know or one city even and just looking in Mumbai um, and what 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 it's like in a developing country and how their culture has been changed by in, the industrial food system and so um, and so it was good because we saw like a window into so like three or four families we saw the first family who um, you know we were introduced to right away with the 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 woman who was cooking for um, the the lunch what was it it was like a curry uh, uh, roti which looked delicious <laughs> Um, and then, then there was, um, you know, the the other family that was making a living, uh, um, providing lunches and food for other folks who weren't able to do that themselves, who were probably too busy in some way, and making lunches or making a meal for ten or more people. Um, and then we were introduced to that family who, you know, ate out, like you said, uh, three or four nights a week or, or, or ordered in three or four nights a week. And then at the end, which was fantastic, was that community kitchen that um, was uh, put together so that everybody could eat. And so the wealthier families were paying into a, a sort of a, a pot, and so uh, the and they were subsidizing the the families that could not afford to eat every every meal every day. So, um, so that was, and then so you got uh, you got a, a view into the kitchen where they were making massive pots of you know chicken, and you could see all the you know the spices set aside, and so you know it was a great way to um, counter. Number one, you know, inequality or poverty. Um, number two, you know, trying to get cooked, healthy, nutritious food to everybody and not, um, you know, letting the high calorie diet sort of seep its way in there. So I think, you know, I think there was so much in, in that in that second episode that it was great. You mentioned how effective the industrial food system has been at kind of sneaking in when, mm-hmm. you know, when people were getting busier. It's partially true, but it's also partially a narrative that's been created mm-hmm. for the sake of selling these these things, right? Mm-hmm. You, know, you can imagine Don Draper being like, "Oh, well, you know, uh, w- women are busier, so how about we, how about we tell them like, hey, hey, I, we know that you're too busy to cook. We know yeah. how hard this is for you. You're too busy, so let us take care of that for you." And yeah, creating this mentality and creating this narrative that we're too busy to cook and And that's okay 
and that's okay because somebody else is going to take care of it for you and that's that's probably the most sinister like overtly sinister thing that we see the industrial food system do in this movie or in this series but on on the other hand there's one one of my favorite moments from the whole series happens in water where the one gentleman who just kind of sneaks in and says, says clever things. I, I don't remember his name. I'll, I'll include it in the episode's show notes. I'll look, I'll look it up and make sure that people, you know, I'm giving credit where it's due, but where he says, you know, if you want apple pie, that's fine. You can have apple pie. You can have all the cookies. You can have all the ice cream that you want, but tell you what you have to make it yourself and putting that challenge out there that, if you're willing to put the time and effort into putting something that seems unhealthy into your body, you're going to appreciate it more and you're going to do it with high quality ingredients and you're going to work for it. And I loved that idea as a challenge because it's so easy. And this is again, me speaking to my own personal failures Mm -hmm. in terms of taking care of my own body to just, you're sitting there at work and you get kind of, kind of a rumbly tummy. So you're not even actually hungry, honestly bored if I'm being totally honest and it's so easy to just, you know, pop over to a variety store, drop $2 on a bag of chips or something like that. Just mm-hmm. eat something that you don't need to be eating that if you really wanted it, then you would take the time to make it yourself and to appreciate what's going into it. So I loved that. I loved that challenge so much. And that's been something that's been kind of pecking away at the back of my mind because I do. I'm a snacker. That's I snack a lot. So so I, I, I want to have that in the back of my mind and I want that to be haunting me. I think it's a good challenge. I really do. I think that, I think his name is Harry Balzer because he was from, he's like a, the food industry marketer expert or a research expert or something. Anyways, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, Michael Pollan has dropped that idea before, I think in one of his, uh, in a previous book in food rules or something like that. One of the rules is, you know, you can have whatever you want as long as you make it. And and I and I think even in the episode, uh, the previous episode, I think he talked about, you know, better cuts of meat, better quality meat versus, you know, sort of taking as much meat as you can. And so you, you see the, the pig sort of splayed open, mm-hmm. uh, you know, ready to be cooked. And, and then at the end, that um, that poor vegetarian who was, you know, convinced with the <laughs> the lovely <laughs> the lovely meat cooked over the over the fire. So yeah, that um, was another part of not knowing how to feel about it. Like, look, we converted a vegetarian, and she looks so mad at herself for enjoying it. It was great. That was great. A more recent food phenomenon is the uh, the very fast sped up time lapse cooking, not even cooking, but dessert prep videos mm-hmm. that are showing up on. Like, do you see these on your Facebook feed yes. or mm-hmm. where it's just bam, 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 throwing all this stuff together. And doesn't this look delicious and really unhealthy? And I would hate for somebody to take <laughs> the challenge that's in this for somebody to go ahead and do that. Because so many of those videos start with, okay, first thing you have to do is you have to open up this case of a Pillsbury Crescent roll, or you have to open up this prepackaged bag of this. Like it's all designed to look as easy as possible mm-hmm. and to feel the bare minimum amount of satisfaction about creating something without actually putting the ingredients together yourself. Even when we're cooking now, a lot of the time we're cooking with ingredients that aren't really ingredients. They're ingredients that are pieced together from 18 different ingredients themselves or, you know, two different ingredients and 16 chemical compounds or or whatever the case may be. (laughs) I'm trying to not be cynical about it because I know it's really easy to get to that. And I think that Michael Pollan did a really great job of 
not crossing that line of just kind of like poo-pooing at at chemicals and things like that like you tried to be very fair in in explaining these things but yeah I, i can see even the idea of cooking being kind of corrupted that okay yeah just throw this in the microwave and and now cooking is finished but one of the final things that we get left with in water is the idea that we collectively cannot afford the fallout of eating food that we can afford mm-hmm. that there isn't the the forward thinking or mm-hmm. even the possibility of to to have the foresight to know exactly how our bodies are going to react to all of this and we have all these crises that are happening with increased uh, intolerance to gluten and and things like that or, mm-hmm. or the increase in diabetes the increase in obesity that exists that you know we didn't we didn't know the cost of that it certainly doesn't outweigh the benefits of not spending a whole lot of money on food in the first place i like the idea of you know sort of cooking at the beginning they're cutting the the onions and they were sort of joking about the onions but um they were talking about how when you put it all together when you're actually cooking it then it becomes um, greater than the sum of its parts you know there's all of the reactions together um, you know the spices and the meat and the vegetables and all the different kinds of vegetables you know reacting together and how that chemical reaction is happening all the way from the beginning from fire to water to air and and, uh, earth so the idea of this chemical reaction creating something way better than what it was before being able to access more of the flavor being able to access more of the nutrients i think that you know that sort of idea of the pot with the bubbling water and all of the vegetables going in there and then they had a little like a crock pot that they put into the oven with um with that piece of meat whatever it was uh i could almost smell it you know like it was it it just the way you know they had done it it was great and so that idea for me really sticks and how important that is it's you know you think one one pot cooking or whatever it's such a you know a new sort of trend but that that the value of that and what it really means and how it sort of breaks down it's it's you know it's sort of uh, an exciting sort of element of that of that that process of really getting into it and putting things together and and um, creating something new and better I think that's that's you know pretty wonderful mm-hmm. so the next episode was air which primarily dealt with the phenomenon of bread the the episode starts off with a fairly poignant uh, visual representation that this whole thing is about air and the the poor woman who's kneading the dough is working so hard and she's getting winded and that was an immediate kind of connection between you know the air in the bread and the the bubbles in the bread and the air that we're breathing the fact that there's this exertion of oxygen mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and of of gases in our own bodies i just thought that that was a really nice immediate connection between the the topic and uh and the people who were in it i think it's interesting that michael pollan sort of admits at the beginning that or near the beginning about um, it being an intimidating process for him to, you know, sort of undertake, even though he's got a bit of uh, cooking experience that cooking bread or baking bread was, was intimidating for him. And this was really an expose of how, of, of bread as a phenomenon. Like this was probably the one that I learned the most in, Mm -hmm. in terms of the broad topics and, and, and and context that, that bread is important. And like uh, for one learning that, 
you know, if you give somebody flour and water and that's all they have to live on, they're not going to live for very long. But if they put it together and they give it time, then all of a sudden it becomes this thing that can sustain you in perpetuity. And planting that seed early on, you're being like, what? Like how? No, that doesn't, it, it defies explanation. And that's where you can really understand the, the mysticism about food that they talk about because this whole, this whole bread thing, it's, what's happening is largely invisible. Mm-hmm. It's this, this process that's just kind of taken time and trust and honing to create this thing by accident that turns out can be, and for many cultures is, the staple of the diet. Like uh, the one country they're in, they say that it's 60%, I think it's Morocco, mm-hmm. right? they say 60% of the caloric intake of the population is from bread. Amazing. And if you were to think about it in North America, you need know, to have this reaction of, no, then everybody's going to be fat because bread is fat and it's bad for you and you shouldn't eat bread. But it's, no, we shouldn't eat <laughs> the bread that we're eating. You should yes. eat bread. You know, learning about that and understanding that while bread is the most complex food that we've talked about so far, I mean, like meat is from meat, <laughs> from mm-hmm. an animal. You chop it off, you cook it. Plant-based cooking is from the plant you boil it and you're good to go but bread is so much more complex but it's also so much less expensive because of the 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 simplicity involved in the creation of it which opens us up to talking about the whole this is the first time we've really talked about the economy mm-hmm. of food and, and international trade which i know is definitely a a topic of interest for you Mm-hmm. I think it was really exciting in uh, this episode in, in many ways. I think that um, introducing the idea of fermentation, um, we've, you know, jumped um, exponentially further into, um, you know, sort of human and communities uh uh, organizing and eating uh, better and more interesting um, and accessing, being able to access more nutrients. This episode, you know, talks about um, international trade, like you said, and the politics of that. I think he says at one point, agricultural policies of one country affect other countries. And I think that without going too far into it, he sort of introduced the, that idea of, of you know, uh, of what that could mean potentially um, for the international economy uh, and he talked about food riots about you know in relation to the cost of bread um, and that being an important uh, sort of commodity that is you know monitored quite closely so that there aren't you know food riots based on on on, on bread being too expensive so I think you know because we could easily go into talking about the World Trade Organization we could talk about um, um, agricultural policies in the US and in Europe you know talking about subsidies which have crushed some you know in industries, uh, agricultural industries in, you know, for instance, Mexico and, and so on. So this is, you know, sort of a good place to start talking about, you know, how these kinds of international trade policies do affect the world, largely, you know, with the with the lead of, of the U.S. So it's exciting, you know, this episode. Um, bread, uh, you know, is kind of demystified and mystified all at the same time. I think, you know, being introduced to the idea of, of you know, germs, bacteria and, and microbes not necessarily being all that bad. In fact, you know, good and helping us in terms of creating something new in terms of bread fermentation, which is yummy. Yeah, the the science part of this one was incredibly interesting to me because you know, as I mentioned, they kind of tease you early on saying that flour and water can't sustain you, but bread can. You're like, ooh, tell me more. (laughs) 
and it takes about two-thirds of the way through the episode before they start talking about how really what you're doing is you're triggering these enzymes which are breaking down the grains and kind of starting to process them for you so Mm -hmm. that then once they get into your body the process is already kind of further along so your body's not having to do all of the heavy lifting of crunching through the grain and, and really tapping into anything somebody's opened it up for you so it was great to have that unlocked and then you know having that knowledge when they explain how processed bread came into existence that it's not saying that processed bread is bad because it's processed bread it's taking the time to explain chemically mm-hmm. what's lacking in it it's not just about trying to say well things used to be better gosh darn it it's saying that when you take out this element of something which was the root of bread in the first place when you're supplementing it or finding workarounds Mm. you're going to end up with these other obstacles that you didn't expect in the first place and he again he throws down this challenge that you know i'm not a doctor so i don't want to say how how responsible it was for him to do so but he very boldly states that you know take these thousands of people who say that they have an intolerance to gluten or a sensitivity to gluten and give them real sourdough bread and Mm -hmm. i bet they'll be able to digest it without any kind of problem which was i'm not somebody who would be offended by hearing that (laughs) but that seemed like a pretty bold claim that i was like well you're you know you're throwing down that gauntlet so i'll i'll listen you know based on that on the science he gave he you know he makes a strong argument you know i don't know (laughs) i think you're right it's like you know i don't know the science behind gluten intolerance and whatnot Mm -hmm. but and even the, the when he talks about the adding of yeast to bread and how you know it it it's again it's missing a step where bread will naturally rise because of as the one <laughs> the one gentleman who used to work for Microsoft and is now uh, now working in the food industry he says basically yeah. those pockets are just like bacterial farts which <laughs> I loved it. Put it so plainly, like he's he's trying to sell you on bread and talking about bacteria farting in your food, which is great. But how because we know what bread looks like, somebody found that well, if we add yeast to it, then the bread will rise faster and mm-hmm. it'll it'll look puffier, and therefore it's bread sooner. But it's not bread because the the processes that break down the gluten for you that make it softer, make it easier to digest, those haven't happened. You've just made something look bigger, and that goes back to what we talked about with with the industry being way more concerned about how something is presented to you than how it's going into you. And I think it, I, I think he's um he made a good point about what the FDA or was it the FDA whatever or uh, agency that defines Oh the FDA that used to say that bread was three ingredients. Three ingredients. Bread uh yeah. And then Water, now it's flour tw- and salt and now they 21 ingredients 18 or, 18 or something like that. Yeah. And it, that shows how vulnerable these you know, these agencies that are meant to be in place to protect consumers aren't primarily or aren't at least exclusively concerned with the end consumer. Yeah. There, are, there are interests at stake. It's, it's hard to kind of know who to trust and what to trust. It kind of feeds into a, a cynicism that's hard to, hard to know what to do with. I like the I like the idea and the the simplicity of bread being three ingredients. I think he sort of you know sort of hones in on that quite nicely when you know he's you know cutting the bread or he's eating the bread. And I think you know it's so simple. It is and to think about what twenty one or eighteen ingredients are in the other bread that we're eating. 
you know, I, I have never looked at them. <laughs> but, you know, what, what those could actually be. One little thing that I noticed in this documentary, or in this episode in particular, that I'm sure he was doing all along, but I appreciated that when Michael Pollan is talking about the problems of the food industry, he speaks in the first person. So he says, we have done this, we have done that, mm-hmm. which makes it, again, it it makes it our problem. It yeah. doesn't make it these people doing something to us. We've all collectively been on this path together and it's up to us. It, it empowers you to do something about it, which I thought was a, a very important and effective device throughout the whole series. Yeah, and, and I think he, you know, I think it's good that he hasn't overcomplicated things by, you know, including way more things than bread. Like it's, that's an e- that's one thing you can sort of tackle or you can understand. Um, he's not going into all kinds of other food items that have also been complicated by more, you know, more ingredients or more chemicals or more processing. But he, you know, sort of goes with bread. And that's one sort of, you know, staple commodity food commodity that people can actually wrap their head around and so i think you know it's a good it's you know it's a it's a great place to start it's a good place to sort of you know begin scratching the surface of of you know processed food what does that mean what does it look like and then you can really you know open up you know wonder bread and you know take a look at it and then see the difference between you know like a an oven baked bread that you do at home Mm-hmm. incredibly challenging to try and even undertake one of those <laughs> as he was saying uh anything else with the air i just think that the that what they were trying to achieve with with industrial sort of uh, you know made bread was to de- you know what he was saying was you know, talking about decreasing the price also eliminating the amount of time necessary to make it and then also in the end it's that as a result has decreased the amount of nutrition we've got out of it and in fact you know, hurt us more than it has actually given us anything nutritious. So um, I think that you could sort of slide that through any one of the different episodes of of of, uh, of Cooked, and, and that could be true for, you know, each one. So Yeah. He doesn't specifically draw the uh, draw the comparison, but he does say early on that if, if you were to just eat wheat hmm. and water, you would die. If you eat bread, you can live. And, you know, on the on the scale of where we're at, you know, where does Wonder Bread really fall? Like, is it close to <laughs> to just basically you're just chewing on like a wheat plant and it's not really doing a whole hell of a lot for you? Like, I, they never explicitly say that, you know, it's going to kill you if you if you keep it up. But, but it, it makes you think that, you know, this thing that has the potential to be absolutely sustainable, if not handled respectfully, can easily be stripped of everything that actually makes it what it is and has the power that it has so the last episode is called earth and this is one where they primarily deal with uh, fermentation this is where they really really hammer home the concept of cooking as alchemy and having magical mystical things happen by either putting two things together or leaving something alone for long enough that it (laughs) just becomes something else entirely Along with an interesting theory of history that maybe it wasn't agriculture that led to the founding of civilization first. Maybe people just really wanted to get drunk and (laughs) and that then led to agriculture. You know, the first opening scene for me was quite shocking to see that fermentation process where the women were chewing the yucca. Yes. That was interesting. I've never seen that before. Um, Was that shocking for you? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's sent off all these red flags <laughs> in my head. I'm like, no, no, get that, <laughs> spit that out. I'm not eating that. Yeah, absolutely. And the, for, I guess for anybody who hasn't seen it, the, the idea with this image is that there's this plant, this yucca plant, this root that uh, this one culture has found that the best way to trigger this into or to trigger the fermentation process to turn this into what is it an alcoholic drink they turn yes. it into yep. okay to uh to, to to kick this off is uh by chewing on it and then just spitting it out and it looks repulsive as well like it looks like a child kind of rejecting the food that they're trying for the first yes. time just kind of like opening their mouths and this this scrambled egg looking goop just kind of tumbles out <laughs> And it's another one of those things where the uh, where it turns out later, looking at it scientifically, that it's actually there's an enzyme in human saliva that's triggering this whole reaction. But, you know, they don't know, that. <laughs> or at least originally when this tradition was started, they didn't know that they were just somebody did it. And now we can drink. And they say that it doesn't work the same without having human saliva involved in that process. So. <laughs> So they, you know, they explain it afterwards. So it's necessary for the for the alcohol to have that that process. But me not being part of that that knowledge base, uh, it was it was shocking. It was great. It was it was good to see. Yeah, and something it, new. And they talk about the germophobia that we have that, right. that has led to you know that feeling of disgust. That you know they they give credit to the concept of discovering of germs and to the eradication of diseases by focusing in on the bacteria that causes uh, a lot of health problems but he also speaks to the we've overcompensated we've overstepped to the point that we're just sanitizing absolutely everything and that's potentially halting some some if not important then at least very special chemical reactions that that lead to some pretty amazing experiences when we consume food the other really great part about about that was that was a community process. That wasn't just one person sort of doing it for their own consumption. It was it was a communal process, and so you know the uh, you know I suppose it was gathered sort of communally as well, but um, it was processed you know with communal saliva. And uh, I think I mean you know I think that's a great that's a great thing because they are going to process it together and then eventually all drink it together too. It's not going to be sort of for one person or it will be consumed communally. I think that's you know wonderful to share all of that together. One thing that I learned from this, which I'm, I'm sure that there are people out there who are thinking, "Wow, you're an idiot for not knowing this." But I've always heard the phrase "pasteurized" before, but until watching this, I didn't actually know what that meant which is when you're talking about pasteurizing milk, um, that you completely sanitize it. Hmm. And then you add in specifically curated bacteria and bacterial cultures in order to have it do what it needs to do in order to become cheese, instead of just kind of going through a more natural process of letting the enzymes and letting all the chemical or letting all the bacteria that are already in it kind of do its job and, and focus on honing the reactions rather than creating them from a blank slate which is the industry standard because mm-hmm. of this this overall concern of listeria <laughs> and, and, and things yeah. like that so this was probably the biggest mind shift mm-hmm. episode because it really does challenge you to kind of rethink everything like it, it gives you these images that are upsetting <laughs> for somebody to to watch and they introduce you to flavors that it says you know you probably wouldn't like this and we see these you know, Anthony Bourdain and Gordon Ramsay try foods that are disgusting to them. What was it? Fermented shark? Is that what they're... Yeah, they're eating 
pieces of rotten shark and gordon ramsay almost i think he does throw he either throws up or spits it out into a into a bucket you just can't handle it that's presenting you with all these these disgusting things and they even talk about the concept of disgust and uh and what can happen when you push through that or when you're coming at that same idea from a different angle I have to agree with you. I think that for me, this episode was the most, you know, sort of new and enlightening um, of the four. I, you know, I can't say that I know that much about fermentation before. And this was a great introduction to what it is, how it happens, and, you know, the sort of, you know, the actual need for it. And I had no idea that chocolate was the result of fermentation. Yeah. That for me was was i mean wow i didn't even know what a cocoa bean looked like before this this was um this was a this was great um you know and i, I think that you know michael pollan also introduces to the idea that this is sort of like the highest level or sort of more you know advanced complexity of of our communities um because at this point now you know he's sort of introducing us to the idea of, of preserving food for later and what that process would take and why we would need to do that. And, you know, I think it's really like an important um, part of seeing the whole agricultural system together, because at a certain point you're going to harvest, a community will, will harvest, but you cannot consume all of that food right away. I mean, you couldn't physically intake all of that food. And so you want to be able to eat that later on. And so, you know, without you know any kind of massive refrigeration or uh, you know other kinds of, of preservation fermentation was was a you know is a good solid way of food um, being saved for winter throughout winter in a safe way where he was explaining that the fermentation process kills the bad bacteria with the good bacteria that lactic acid um, preserves food in that way. And and I think for me, that was a huge learning um, for me because, you know, I was sort of, you know, under the impression all of the germs and the bacteria was, you know, are bad. And But to see that there's this spectrum of good and bad bacteria and that fermentation takes advantage of that and, and um, allows us to sort of live well into, you know, a longer period from our harvest. And, you know, that's, I mean, I think it's incredible. I think it's an incredible process to be, you know, and so I think that, you know, it's almost, I mean, it's, you know, sort of interesting that he chose a nun to sort of represent this, you know, mysterious sort of part of, of the, uh, of, of the fermentation and this part of, you know, the food processing or, you know, processing food, you know, that, it's it is a bit mystical it's a bit spiritual it's a bit sacred because we make things like cheese and and uh and chocolate um as a result so and along with this being the most complex kind of food preparation or food preservation that they talk about in this series there's also this hint of danger that the the nun speaks about as well i mean at this point we're talking about allowing food to rot in a tailored way where you know if we're talking about the trial and error of cooking vegetables together that's one thing where like okay this flavor doesn't work out quite right but when you're talking about the curation of molds and trying to distill positive bacteria from bad bacteria like this is potentially a life and death thing that it's taken a long time to learn with a lot of probably bodies left in the wake for the sake of figuring out a way to survive the winter 
Where, I mean, I guess, you know, you take that chance if the other alternative is freezing to death of hunger, or, you know, dying of hunger in a cold, long winter. But, but yeah, I mean, like, watching her, like, pat certain molds off of the cheese and, and things like that, it was... It was, uh, if the first three episodes had me thinking, man, I need to get to the kitchen, the fourth episode was, <laughs> I am never making cheese. I will leave this up to somebody who knows what they're doing. And it was also interesting to see the, how culturally it is an acquired taste from for like kimchi, for instance, with the idea that it's, you know, the, the fermentation process was designed so that these things could be buried under the ground. And it was just culturally, there's been a taste developed for it because there was this process to keep the food alive. So if I were to just try kimchi right now it would probably taste absolutely repulsive to me because of the the flavors and the triggers of, of rotten decay going off in my mouth sounds gross is what i'm saying <laughs> <laughs> well i think that it's um it's this episode's good at, at contrasting sort of traditional ways of food processing with industrial ways of processing and and there was that woman who was she a health inspector, an inspector for FDA or something? I forget what her role was, but she talked about how our industrial food system takes the cheapest inputs and makes cheese with the the milk that's the of the lowest grade, not even right. So what doesn't pass as being drinkable milk gets downgraded to be for food production yes. milk. So, so we make cheese from right. The lesser grade, whereas the the nun, the cheese nun, no, uh, Sister Noel, she said they, they start with the highest quality of milk and they make cheese that way. And I mean, in the end, she was able to sort of test out her process versus the the other in, industrialized process because she tried both and tested them. And the industrial process, as she tested it, had you know was much more dangerous um, with higher levels of E. coli than as you said before, than, than the, the wooden um, barrel mm-hmm. process. Although that one did kind of show the, the dangers of trying to mix the old and the new school. You know, that's, that, that's where the, the danger of fermentation really came in because in, in the one case, she talks about how the Listeria outbreak that gets referenced that happened in France was apparently because there was somebody added raw milk to pasteurized milk, mm-hmm. and that led to all sorts of chemical reactions and this outbreak of Listeria or with the example that we talked about earlier with the the nun makes her cheese in a wooden barrel and the knee-jerk reaction from the people who were testing to you know make sure that there weren't further outbreaks said no 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 this has to be stainless steel because stainless steel is going to prevent there being extra extra things added to the milk but as it turns out the bacteria in the wood was actually keeping the e coli at bay as you mentioned so it's not even necessarily saying that pasteurized milk turned into cheese in a stainless steel vat would be dangerous Mm -hmm. it's that if you try to mix the two concepts together irresponsibly then there are going to be some unexpected reactions and some unexpected consequences that uh that you have to be vigilant of if you don't want to cause an enormous problem for potentially a lot of people's health or you know in the case of the listeria issue death for for dozens of people this series is good at at bringing the cultural um, stories, bringing the cultural stories in, um, and letting letting those uh, individual stories speak as opposed to letting uh, Michael Pollan tell the whole story. So I think that this is another good example of allowing that woman, uh, Sister Noel, to tell her story about that 
cheese making process and it was for her it is spiritual and she even reconciles the idea of spirituality and and science and right you know on on screen which um isn't it, you know it's interesting um to to hear her take on on microbiology and science and and her and her faith so i think that um I enjoyed hearing those uh, personal stories and those uh, the, and seeing into personal lives of you know someone who you know is part of contributing to the food system. She's creating all kinds of and it's you know sort of old world uh, bread. Uh, sorry, old world cheese. You know, with the recipe that's hundreds of years old. I think that's it was a interesting sort of way into um, into cheese. I don't. Like you, I don't think that I'm going to try and try that anytime soon. <laughs> but, um, but I think it was very interesting. One of the most shocking and interesting, and I think Michael Pollan even speaks to how surprising it was for him to to learn this, is that on a cellular ne- on a cellular level, that nine tenths of the cells living inside your body aren't yours. That there's so much bacterial activity happening inside your body at any given time that we're only just beginning to understand what the ramifications, what the consequences, what what that means in terms of what we put into our bodies, what's coming out of our bodies, and what is going to be the best way to support the internal mm-hmm. chemistry and culture of your body. And it just kind of leaves it there as a dangling idea that, well, you know, we've been alive and making food for tens of thousands of years, but there's you know the the harder we look there's still tons that we we don't know what we're doing but hey cooking from home is not a bad place to start yeah i mean i think you know this uh, this last uh, episode really highlights the importance of a bacteria and enzymes in the environment as well as inside of us and the importance of that for our for our well-being i mean i think um, recently, there's been lots of talk about, you know, the importance of of your um, intestinal bacteria and how that's related to your um, your mental health. And this is sort of like an understudied yet field. Um, and you know, sort of further along that line, you know, we're sort of just starting to di- to discover the you know all of the different kinds of bacteria and what their functions are in soil. And we, you know, we sort of are also understudied in in what kind of bacteria are there and what what they do, and how important that is for soil health, for food production, for um, the health and uh, of food and and animals and uh, insects and whatnot. So, I mean, this, you know, sort of is is sort of where you know science is going is to understand more about bacteria and its importance to us as a species and the planet and the environment and i think it's a good way to go yeah it's like you said with the bread it takes bacteria and it kind of demystifies it but then turns around and remystifies it in a whole different way so i think that's going to be a good place to start wrapping things up so normally this is where i ask my guests to tell me what star rating this got on your netflix profile so one star means that you hated it two stars means you didn't like it three stars means you liked it four stars is really liked it and five stars means you loved it Um, And typically I'd ask for an MVP, so kind of like a highlight star. But instead, what I want to ask you is which which story or which image is sticking with you the most? I would give this a four then on my profile. 
All right. It was excellent. Yes. Um, highlights for me would be um, definitely episode two and episode four. I mean, it's it's tough. I think there's some really good parts in, in all of them. Number two, I would sort of take that image of, you know, at the beginning with the pot boiling and, and the vegetables going into the water, really clean image, uh, just to see um, the, that chemical reaction. And probably out of episode four, I would, you know, highlight one of those uh, cheese rounds. That, that would be what I would, would choose. So for myself, I'm also putting this into my profile as four stars. Uh, I felt like it was, it was it has the potential to be deeply inspiring, but it also wasn't always as poignant as I think it was trying to be. So I, I, I'm nervous that the hooks didn't go in quite as deeply as I'd like, so I'm trying to keep reminding myself that they're in there. Um, as for my, my standout image, like my highlight, is uh, in the end of the episode, Air, there was this this image of a whole family sitting around uh, a table on the floor or some kind of platform, and the way that they're eating seems so amazing and so so in touch with a bunch of the different themes that Cooked was trying to get across. So it was this family sitting around. They had a couple big pieces of bread that the family had made, and they had this giant pot in the middle that had some kind of stew or, or something going on inside of it. And the way that they consumed this food was everybody was taking their bread, dipping it into this pot and then eating it. So it had the, the ideas of community. It had the ideas of, you know, not being terrified of germs all the time. (laughs) You know, everybody sharing from the same pot, like to, that seems insane, but it's so, it made it so connected and so beautiful and uh and of course there was there was bread there was vegetables like the the thing that was on the inside had been cooked i don't know if there was meat in it that would probably you know tie the whole damn thing together but but yeah that that really stuck with me and it made me like if if there was going to be any dish that i made from this i want to i want to make my own bread and i want to i want to eat with my family in that way and just I don't know, spread our germs around and double dip the bread everywhere and just just see what happens. And then probably get sick for three weeks because our immune systems are so compromised from not doing that. But but yeah, that that really stuck with me. I found that really inspiring. So uh, Chris, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, you are the proprietor of Bread and Roses Books. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about, about that, where people can find you, kind of what you do? Sure. Um, bread and Roses Books... Um is a new uh, book company in in uh, London, Ontario, very local. Uh, we are new, so we are uh, available uh, for browsing on Alibris and on Biblio. Uh, we also have an Etsy uh, store under uh, Bread and Roses Paper Co. And so I hope that you will uh, watch as we populate some of those sites with our with our, uh, our offerings. But um, thanks very much, Dylan, for having me today. Oh, I really appreciate you coming on and for introducing me to this docu-series. No, I, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your insights and sharing some of your experience with uh, with food and the industries that create it. And I, I really appreciate it. Well, I learned a lot. Thank you. 
Well, that's everything for this week from the Netflix podcast. If you like what you heard today, head on over to the Netflix blog at netflixblog.wordpress.com to see the rest of the Netflix content, like show notes, articles, and reviews. You can also find us on our social media platforms. We're on Facebook as Netflix, on Twitter at NetflixPod, where you can also find me at Dylan Clark Moore, and we're on Tumblr and SoundCloud as Netflix Podcast. You can also find me on Letterboxd as Dylan Clark Moore. Letterboxd is an online media diary where you can see all the rest of the movies that I've been watching, as well as keep up to date with all the upcoming episodes of what we're going to be talking about on the Netflix podcast. If you'd like to support the show, there are a few ways that you can do so. One is by heading over to iTunes or whichever podcast platform you use and subscribing so that each week's episode comes straight to you. While you're there, you can drop a rating or a review and let us know what you think. You can also contribute directly to Netflix by way of our Patreon campaign. Whether it's for the rewards or if you'd just like to see us keep doing what we're doing, you can pledge your support over at Patreon.com. The Netflix podcast is produced and edited by me, Dylan Clark Moore. The theme music was provided by Zach Moore. Thank you so much, and I mean that very sincerely, for checking out this week's episode of the Netflix podcast. And be sure to join me here next week for a whole new conversation about a whole new movie from the Netflix catalog. Because even if you think you've seen it all, you ain't streamed nothing yet. <laughs>